Welcome to episode four of Tables Turned, the show when I get the chance to spin the spotlight 180 degrees and speak to those who are usually asking the questions. This week, I'm delighted to be able to share my conversation with the fantastic Faye Carruthers. Faye is a broadcaster, voiceover artist specialising in sport, but equally at home covering news and current affairs. She's a voice of many big brands, including blue chip clients such as John Lewis, Sky, Amazon, Argos and Disney, and also narrator on a wide variety of football programmes Aired on Sky Sports, BT Sport, Premier League Productions, it can also be heard on Channel 5 and TalkSport. As a reporter and presenter, she travels the country interviewing players and managers for Premier League News and Matchday Live, as well as narrating Premier League World that airs weekly on Sky Sports and BT Sport. In our chat, we talk about this year's Women's World Cup, an event Faye covered extensively and had a very memorable moment during a post-match interview with England's Steph Houghton, when the interview was interrupted by one of the celebrating US players. A situation that upset Steph and needed careful handling by Faye. We dig into what her thoughts and feelings were as it happened. This was just one of many stories shared, including a really interesting one from when Jose Mourinho was sacked by Chelsea for the second time, with Faye bumping into him the day after at Stamford Bridge. A surprise, especially when he was supposed to have left the day before, or so the press thought. But Faye had to bite her tongue and only told her press friends six months later. It's a great chat and I really hope you enjoy it. Before we get going though, please do give us a rating or review as it really helps people find the podcast. And if you do enjoy it, please share with one person who you think will appreciate you doing so. Here's Faye talking about the Women's World Cup, and I'll see you again on the other side. Firstly, how was France? Amazing, really amazing. Full on work-wise, but great fun. Fantastic to see women's football bringing in a whole new legion of fans. And, you know, I think people can see from the, from the product on the, on the pitch the improvements that have been made. And I think it's won over a lot of people. And the media interest was through the roof this year. From the outside, it looked that way anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're kind of in a bubble in tournament football, so you don't really realise what's going on at home. When I was in Russia in 2018, I had no idea how enormous it was back here and exactly the same in France. Um, you kind of get a bit of a, a bit of a vibe from social media. The pivotal moment for me was when Georgia Stanway uh, sent a tweet out saying, come on, Glastonbury, my brother is at Glastonbury this yeah, weekend. That, yeah. And, you know, well, he, he wants to watch the game. And they did. And I've been to Glastonbury before... I I think it was in the South Africa World Cup 2010 and we, and we watched it and in the Euros as well. You know, loads of people did want to just go and, and experience it. And then when you saw the pictures of the amount of people gathered around the screen, the screen to watch that, it was just incredible. There's so many more kind of broadcasters there as well yeah. than you've seen before. Yeah, very much so. There, there were, I mean, it, it was really difficult actually because I think there's a fine line for, for those people that have covered the women's game for a long time it was a massive surprise for them to then see big names there, almost taking their time away from them. But then the part of them that wants to see the women's game grow was delighted at the number of extra people that were there. But even at St George's Park, when they did the pre-media um, session, it was absolutely rammed. It was, it was very similar to what you would get at the Premier League launch, for example, or when the England men did it at St George's Park before uh, Russia 2018. Every single media outlet 
was there. And of course, nowadays it's different anyway because you get a lot more digital media outlets you know, covering things as opposed to the kind of traditional big hitters, if you like. But um, yeah, it was it was really good to see. And particularly, uh, I was recruited by Talk Sport to go and work there. And that is not, women's football is not traditionally something that Talk Sport would cover or even entertain. So the fact that they're on board with, you know, a massive growth area uh, in sport was fantastic. I think the key thing is now is kind of, where does it go from here? You don't want to see it just drop off and then kind of, TalkSport or whoever never mentions it again until the next World Cup. That's what TalkSport were very keen not to do and they do have plans for, for the new WSL season which is really exciting. Of course that is going to be sponsored by Barclays which is enormous. That always really helps. Um, you're seeing more podcasts, you're seeing a lot more interest, you're seeing uh, the FA getting involved, improving grassroots in the women's game and then you're seeing the clubs getting on board and doing exactly what Manchester City for example have done in this one club mentality you know, and not making it you know, that they're separate entities and then you're getting these double headers which will be really ex- exciting and interesting to see how they're perceived, because there's a lot of question marks still all around them. Um, What are you going to do with tickets? Do you have to buy a ticket to both games? You know, are you going to turf everybody out after the women's game? Is it going to be before? Is it going to be after? What's the atmosphere going to be like? All of those different things. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see that in September. Your role when you were out there, what was your kind of typical day looking like when you were there it was it was absolutely rammed if I'm honest so I was out there on my own and that's quite rare to happen normally you would go out with a team so you'd have a producer um, or perhaps an engineer and it was literally I was producer reporter presenter at times and uh, engineer basically jack of all trades which was really difficult Uh, logistical planner as well uh, because I was getting requests from all the different shows wanting me on at certain times which was brilliant you know that the worst thing when you're out in a tournament is when people don't use you because you feel a bit useless Um, but I was I was on all the time which was great Um, and I was out getting extra content so in the morning I would either do like the early breakfast show which was you know five 30 UK time, 6.30 French time. And then I'd do the Alan Brazil Sports Breakfast and Talk Sport 2's Sports Day, which is their breakfast show. So I'd have two morning shows. Um, And then it totally depended what the England team were doing and where I was going. So logistically in France, it was quite difficult because the team didn't have one set base, which meant that you were in a bit of a lottery as to where you stay. So in Le Havre, for example which is a couple of hours outside of Paris, all the journalists the first time round were staying in Le Havre, but actually the team were staying in Deville, which is about 45 minutes away. So logistically, trying to book... You know, there is one Uber in Deville. I now know... The guy They're was... good my, friends with them. Yes, yes. Um, oh, God, I forget his name now. I think it was Mat- uh, Matthias, I think, was his name. And, yeah, he made, he made good money. <laughs> but, obviously, there are too many journalists for just one Uber. Um, so that was a bit of a, a, a logistical nightmare. So you had to factor that in. I can't broadcast while I'm in a car full of, you know, six other people. And so quite often I would have to then uh, wait to see what show I could go on, try and get where possible when we put up uh, players either get them live on the show if possible but I mean that had its own technical nightmare because it depended on how good the Wi-Fi was or the 4G signal because we were using a Comrex which is quite a frustrating piece of kit to, to, to use um, so yeah there was a lot of that going on and then 
would then go to training. So I'd maybe do a hit into H&J for, for training. And then I'd be doing stuff into other shows and other shows would be turning my content around. So yeah, it was, it was pretty full on, you know, get up at six and still be on air at 10. <laughs> wow, that's long days, but I imagine the adrenaline kept you going through it. Yeah, definitely. And, and the fact that we had such a lovely press pack out there, actually. It was a really nice group of people that had been sent out for various different outlets. And, and that really helped, you know, because you, you do get downtime, obviously. Everybody's got their deadlines and things to, to make. But, you know, usually you can go out for dinner or a lunch and, and have a chat. And, you know, it's just a really nice group of people out there. One part of or one thing that happened during the World Cup that I wanted to kind of get your inside experience on was the Steph Houghton interview that mm -hmm. kind of blew up yep. a little bit during it. For us, we're a group of winners. We want to win as many games as we possibly can and um, to lose one in the way that we have, um, it's disappointing and not to our standard to what we've been playing out over the last few weeks. And um, Look, but this group, this group will bounce back, whoever... Whoever's a part of that group. Um, no, there was no need for that at all. That was Lindsay Horan shouting, which is just a bit disrespectful. Ridiculous. Um, I'm sorry, but that's disrespectful, man. Um, yeah, anyway, can I go now? Please? Of course Thank you. you can. Thank you, Steph. Was that your experience? How did you deal with that? Because I thought you dealt with it really, really well. Thank you. And <laughs> I think a lot of people did. It's kind of, it was one of those situations that is just kind of really unexpected. Yeah. And what was going through your mind at that time? Um, the fan in me was going through my mind a little bit because I thought it was so disrespectful of Lindsay Horan to, to do that. Equally, you're in a tunnel environment. It was, it was really difficult. Steph was really upset. You know, you, you've got not just been knocked out of the semi-finals of a, of a tournament you genuinely thought you could win, missing the penalty that would have taken that to extra time and all the emotion that comes with that. Her personal life obviously has been very difficult this past six months or so with, with her husband's illness coming out. And she just looked broken. She really did. And for her to even just come out and, and talk to us was incredibly impressive so in that scenario you have to ask the pertinent questions obviously but you're also dealing with a person and you're dealing with a person who's going through quite you know turbulent emotions straight off the pitch so you have to take that into account so we were standing to get to put it in context for you we were standing um, not far from the USA dressing room and to my left, so Steph's right, were a group of TV outlets, and one of them was an American TV outlet. And uh, the American goalkeeper was being interviewed at the time, and Lindsay Horan was waiting, standing directly behind Steph, waiting for her turn to be interviewed. She could see Steph immediately in front of her. I, I feel like she knew what she was doing. And she started shouting, you know, because obviously the goalkeeper had, had saved Steph's penalty. And Steph could just, just looked over her shoulder, glared at her, kind of imploring her to say something. That was Lindsay Horan's opportunity to say, I'm so sorry. She could see that Steph was being interviewed and she didn't. And so it was a really awkward moment where it's like, well, I can't ignore this. Um, and then Steph said something, thankfully for her, off mic. And then I had to talk to her about it. But, you know, she said it was disrespectful. I said it was disrespectful. And she just looked at me 
bit pleadingly and just went, can I go now? I was like, absolutely. I'm not going to say, no, you must stay and talk to me about that. She was devastated. So, yeah, it was... Um, from my fan and person head, it was unfortunate that happened and I really felt for her in that moment. But from my journalist, great radio head, it was good radio. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Going back to kind of where this all started, I mean, you took broadcast journalism at university. Yeah. But before that, you must have had an idea of where you wanted to go quite early. You seems like one of these people that had a, right, I want to do this yep. when I grow up and did it. Yep. <laughs> when, did, when did all that start? 11. Um, 11 years old, I wanted to be a journalist. And I remember um, my oldest and best friend, Gary, his, his granddad at the time said, oh, no, you'll be a, you'll be a weather girl. That's what he said to me. I don't want to be a weather girl. And I was really annoyed about it. I was like, I'm not going to be a weather girl. I don't want to be a weather girl. Nothing wrong whatsoever about being a weather girl, but also I'm not very scientifically minded and you have to be a meteorologist to do that. And that's not my skill set. Even at 11, I knew that. I was a creative person um, and writing was what I loved doing. I found Maura Stewart a real inspiration. I wanted, I had a, <laughs> there's actually earlier than when, earlier than 11, I had made um, a television box out of a cardboard box and cut it out and read the news which was actually stories for seven-year-olds or five-year-olds whatever it was at the time reading it as if I was reading the, the rest news. of the family had to sit there and, uh, and, and yeah and entertain you <laughs> entertain me um it was either that or dance to all the songs on top of the pops um yeah so I I, I always knew that's what I wanted to do and when I went to university um I mean I try not to deal in regrets nowadays but I think probably the one thing that I maybe, in hindsight, look back on is perhaps I could have gone on and read English at university and then done a postgrad journalism degree. But there just weren't that many around. And actually, there were a few really good universities back when I was going that did specifically broadcast, and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. And so I'd gone and I'd got work experience at my local radio station, putting in the carts cutting and editing with, you know, China Graph pencil and, uh, and razor blade. I'm really <laughs> showing my age now. Um, and, I, and I loved it. I absolutely loved the buzz. It was at Chilton FM, which is in Dunstable, which is now, I think, a heart station, depressingly. And it was just great. And I loved being in the newsroom and I loved the buzz. And what I had to do for my uh, university and why I ended up going to Nottingham Trent University is because they actually wanted to know you as a person and as a journalist and know what you were capable of doing, whereas a lot of the universities purely took you on grades. And I don't think getting the best grades in the world necessarily makes you the best journalist in the world. So I loved Nottingham Trent for that reason. So I had to, you know, go and do... Oh God, if I ever listened back to it... And my mum's my still got the cassettes somewhere. Um, and if I had to listen to... to try and dig it, them out and put some extracts oh, in here. Oh, I think it'd be so cringe. <laughs> um, I thought I was, you know really clever uh, as everybody does when they first go to university and then realize quite quickly that they're not as special as they think they are and yeah so that's how I ended up going to Nottingham Trent but actually I didn't get my grades to go I was devastated I had to uh, I just thought I was going to have to go through clearing because my backup option was University of Central Lancashire which has got a fantastic journalism department oh really well I very and she did English oh did she <laughs> brilliant I very nearly went there to do journalism but my you know I'm a bit of a home bird at heart and you know an hour and a half up the motorway to Nottingham was very different to 
four and a half to five hours up the motorway to, to Preston. Um, and so I really didn't want to go as my backup to my backup choice and I would have deferred for a year. Um, so I had like a real nervous week where I was waiting for Nottingham to say whether I'd got a place or not. And they took me based on the interview that I'd done and the audio packages that I'd given them and everything else. And so I was really chuffed and it made me want to repay them as much as possible by doing the best I possibly could on that course because I felt like they'd, you know, recognised something in me in my kind of slightly egotistical way. <laughs> Where did you see your career going from there? Was sport an element of it at that stage? Yeah, sport was an element of it, but I was very well aware. So I've been brought up in my house watching sport, playing sport. Golf was on our television, still is at mum and dad's all the time. Uh, played cricket in the back garden with my dad, rugby in the back garden, rounders up the field with my mates, like football. I was the only girl to go and play football with, again, my friend um, Gary, whose granddad told me to be a weather girl. Um, he had a party and actually his mum has still got the videotape of that. I am reliably informed. He had like a five-a-side football tournament at Lee Manor High School, which is like where the sports hall was in, in, in Luton. And, um, and I was apparently kicking all the boys to pieces on the, on the court, which is, which is what it was in the sports hall where we used to do roller disco as well. So it was like a multi-purpose <laughs> sports hall. So yeah, I've, I, I've always loved sport. And when I went to university, it's something that made me st stand out because there were only a couple of us girls, me and my friend Anna, who now works for uh, Radio 5 Live. We were the only two sports fans in our year, really. She's, she was a Shrewsbury Town fan and I was a Luton Town fan, which gave us, uh, it's so ridiculous to see it now, but it gave us kudos in terms of the guys because we weren't, you know, Arsenal. Not glory fans. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we had a really nice group who worked together and I worked on the sports show. So in my first year, so we used to work for what was a, a station first called Kick FM and then for legal reasons had to change itself to Fly FM. Um, and I used to go with my Motorola flip down phone with antenna that I first had at university. We were talking about mobile phones before we started this podcast. And I was sent wherever I could go to do football reports. I had no idea what I was doing, not a Scooby. But I remember the first game I went to was Mansfield against Hayes in the first round of the FA Cup. Oh, big game. Massive game. Went to Field Mill, got lost on the one-way system in Mansfield. And the team rang me. Now this was, let me just put this into context, not condoning talking on your phone while driving, but in 1998, not many people had mobile phones and it wasn't really something that anybody thought was a problem. Um, and so they rang me and I'm literally on the one-way system going, I can't file my report live on air. I can't file my um, preview because I'm still not at the ground yet because I was driving around. I mean, university radio, but it, that taught me the best lesson ever, which is always leave enough time to get lost. So that's what I did. And because I was a Luton fan, I then got in touch with Luton and asked if I could go in their press box. Um, the didn't always have room in their press box. Uh, so I used to sit at the back of the main stand in e-block and do my reports on my mobile phone at the back, trying to be as, especially when there's just been a goal, trying to make myself heard. Can you remember around, it must probably be around this stage, the first interview you did? I think, well, I can remember the first interview I went on, football related. It was with David Platt at Nottingham Forest when I was on work experience. There were probably more before, before that, but this was the one that rings a bell. 
And I went with my local radio station, which was Trent FM. And I very much was aware, and I hate myself for saying this now, but I was very much aware that I was a, a woman in a press room and that I wasn't seen to be the person doing the interview. And I didn't feel like if I had taken the microphone and conducted the interview that I would have been taken seriously. And I found that a little bit depressing and daunting. And I kind of want to go back to that person and inject them in with a bit of confidence and say, go on, give it a go. What's the worst that could happen? But I just didn't have the confidence to do it. And I think that's How something... How old were you at that stage? 19, 20. And I think that's something that I struggled with for a long time in my career. And I never wanted to put myself forward. You as a shy person. Yeah, I, I, I am. Not that anybody who... Kno- no, like, no, not at all. No, but, <laughs> but in terms of... I think it comes from a place of fear, probably. You know, I've, I've done quite a bit of... Not soul-searching is not the right word, but I'm, I'm quite... Um, reflective. I'm reflective and self-aware, I think. And I can now look back as an older person, I can now look back and, and, and realise that, that I was just terrified of being rejected or being wrong or being made to look foolish. Even though, I mean, I could sit in the pub with all of my mates and tell you exactly what was going on. I posted a photo on um, Instagram and, and Twitter a while ago, which was when I was clearing out my back bedroom and I'd found an old fantasy dream team from the Daily Mail. And I literally had written out every player. It was like five or six pages worth. I had written out every player in precise, neat writing. How much they cost, how much... And then I had, like, my sums and everything else. I knew my football inside out, but I was always ready for someone to to trip me up and I me not know the answer. Is it a little bit kind of imposter syndrome? Yeah, very much, very much. And Because I, I get that as well in yeah. terms of... It doesn't matter how long you've worked in somewhere, everyone else knows more than you do. Yeah, but, but they don't because they don't have your, your, your viewpoint of it, you know. And just because you've seen a situation in front of you and play out in your head how you thought it was, that doesn't mean it's wrong how you've analysed it. You might have just analysed it differently. I mean, it's why you get a pundit and a commentator work so well together because a commentator, having not played football, for example, will view what happened very differently to a pundit who's looking at it more technically but you learn from both doesn't mean that either is wrong fan in an armchair will look and watch a game very differently to a commentator watches a game who watches very differently to a pundit watching the game so I find nowadays that I can't enjoy football as much anymore like just sitting at home and watching it because you're concentrating on those bits that you would as yeah and I'm also concentrating on TV angles I'm like why have they done that angle what it drives me nuts actually I I really would love and I used to do it with news when I was in news for a little while as well I couldn't watch a package without going "Mm, that's not factually correct look at the picture that they've put with that that's a bit misleading just just I'd love to be able to consume media nowadays as someone who knows nothing about it it would be great because I think I would enjoy it a bit more but probably be manipulated quite a lot but it's like with podcasts you know I concentrate on the sound Mm. now so I'm very aware and if I hear something that isn't right I mean I'm not saying mine's perfect by any stretch of the imagination but if something's not right, it really bugs me. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just have, I'll probably have to switch it off. Oh, like clipped audio, my, my biggest bugbear. Well, you've just not, you've not softened that edit. <laughs> my husband's like, what do you mean soften the edit? Oh, just, I don't know, just turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectionist. So I when think. was the first time that you had the microphone from that work experience to actually getting in front of someone being the person that's asking the questions? The great thing about Nottingham Trent 
is that they made us do news days from the second year onwards. We did news days. And actually in the first year, we did also used to go out with a camera. I was always much more... So again, this goes back to imposter syndrome. Um, and I remember one of the guys on my course saying to me, I said, oh, I'd, I'd rather do radio because, you know, then no one can judge me. I didn't like being in front of the camera. I didn't like people looking at, you know, oh, oh no, do you know what? I didn't go to the gym last week, so I don't feel like I can go on camera. Like ridiculous things like that. Like it genuine, it just should not matter. And I felt quite, quite a lot like that. Um, so radio was great for me because I could just hide a little bit. So that worked really well. I do remember doing interviews where the equipment went wrong, which was always like my, and, and still now, I mean, I'd probably, doing myself a disservice, I would describe myself as a technophobe. I'm not a technophobe, but I don't find technology easy. And I, you know, I can try and problem solve on the on the hoof but if it doesn't work I don't know why I would be the person that bangs it on the table make and says make it work make it to do yeah. but anything beyond that <laughs> yeah. it's kind of exactly and so probably that was that would be my most embarrassing times and actually at university I focused more on news than I did on sport apart from from what I was doing with the radio station um, is that because it was more accessible you could see kind yeah. of more of a future there because it's more established especially. yeah and I think because very early on I was told I had a great news voice um, and actually that's followed me throughout my career and pigeonholed me what and frustrated me voice? well I've got authority I sound like I've got authority Confidence. yeah but also like not not necessarily soothing, but something that is reassure, you know, reassuring, as opposed to traditionally you maybe thought that a sports voice would be more energetic and full on and slightly rough around the edges, if you're putting it back to its simplest form, which is just not the case anymore. You know, you don't have to have an RP sounding accent to, to work for the BBC, for example. All of all of those traditions um, have changed, thankfully. But I always felt like I was very much. And even when I went to Sky, fast forward a bit, a bit further, and I was at Sky News Radio, in fact, and at Real Radio as well, I asked to do sport, and I was told, we've got two guys that do sport. And I had exactly the same at Sky until I just pushed and pushed and pushed. And like, not in Were a, there any reasons given, or was it just... No, none whatsoever. We have two guys, sorry, there's no spaces. Yep, as opposed to, why don't you go out with... Um, do you have the impression, because you're female, that was one of the reasons? <sighs> it's really difficult because I might be very wrong, but that is how I felt. Um, but again, you know, a lot of things that come out nowadays about women in sport, I do feel that sometimes women didn't do themselves any favours by feeling intimidated in the first place. And it, it was funny, actually, I because I walk into a press room now, and I know most people in that press room, and I have a chat and talk about what games we've been at, talk about whatever it is that, you know, we're catching up on, whatever gossip. And I, I, I know them all. Even 10 years ago, walking into one of those press rooms was really daunting. I was... Kind of quite clicky. Very clicky. But I was also pretty much, apart from maybe two women, and it depended what press conference you were at and who was there, because there were obviously women around, but it just depended. If you were at a smaller press conference, you were less likely to find them still now. And, yeah, so it was a little bit. And maybe the guys didn't know what to say to me and didn't want to come across. But then you, you did get the kind of old generation who like, who like to make f people feel intimidated. But it's really funny because um, I took uh, someone on work experience into a press room. 
And then I'd also seen a couple of youngsters. So nowadays you get a lot of the new digital guys coming in and they're really inexperienced. They're straight out of university. Uh, when I was in France, the University of Derby had a whole group of students out there. So they were experiencing, experiencing it for the first time. I mean, how incredible is that, that your first experience of a tournament is a World Cup um, and you've not even finished university yet. That's just amazing. And you look at it from their point of view. They're intimidated, male or female. You know, everybody likes to, even, even if you're getting on a tube or um, in a room, you know, there's like um, that traditional way of where you should sit on a table so that you, or if you're meeting someone for coffee, choosing the seat first so you have the, you know, power. And it's not really power, it's more comfort. And if you're walking into a press room, you know, you know where the best place to sit is, where you're going to be out of the way, where you can direct your questions. If you've never been in one you know a specific one before and you don't know anyone you don't want to upset anyone you don't want to sit on someone's chair that you're not supposed to you sit just on stand around at the outside kind of you just hover like you would at a school disco when you're a child you know which is exactly what I used to do I was the awkward teenager standing at the back not knowing where the hell I was supposed to go what I was supposed to be wearing who I was supposed to be talking to how to be cool no idea and that is exactly the same when you walk into a press room for the first time you just don't know what to do so I think it perhaps back then was less about being female. I mean, you stood out a bit more because you were female, because you were the only one in there. And I was personally was always really worried about my questions. Well, I must get my questions absolutely right because I don't want anybody to have any excuse to say, well, that was a stupid question. And what's hilarious now is I sit in press conferences. Oh God, there are stupid questions, left, right and centre, male, female, whatever. You know, we're all capable of asking clunky, silly questions that, you know, the... The poor manager at the front's going, well, I'm, I obviously can't tell you that. <laughs> There's one area I wanted to pick up on was the preparation. How has your preparation changed over the years? Because everyone's got a slightly different approach to it. If they're going to interview with David Platt or someone like yeah. that, or I'm coming in to interview you, yeah. how much prep do you do and what do you concentrate on? And do you have a kind of big list of questions? Or I would always say it depends what you want to get out of it. So every interview I do is different depending on who I'm working for and what their goals are. So, for example, I was working for Premier League Productions on Tuesday and it's the West Ham Premier League Media Day. So as part of my role, um, I was providing content for uh, previewing the season and then a load of other things for more of the social sides of, of content that we use and the two previews I, would do, I was doing was with Manuel Pellegrini and Declan Rice and I've interviewed both of them sat down and in fact Declan's a real pleasure to, to interview and each interview I've done with him has been different and it has you know because I've interviewed him on a number of occasions I've got background that I can reflect on so I can say the last time we spoke you wanted to do this and you've got you know historical context. Manuel Pellegrini is is not the warmest character to, to interview. And he doesn't like to tell you very much either. He's been stung by the press before, and so he's very cautious. And so to get a little bit more out of him, you have to make him feel relaxed. You have to give him positive statements. Yeah. And what, and what techniques do you use to um, get so that kind of situation where you can get to a position where you want to get to the question? So I look at what to. they want, first of all. So first of all, my remit for that is their opening game is against Manchester City. Boom. He won the Premier League with Manchester City in 2014. That's one. So they're going to want a little bit of a preview about that. They've just made a number of high-profile signings. Um, Sebastian Haller has just turned up. Great, so we can talk about Haller. Why did he want to do that? Then you're kind of sitting there going, right, high-profile departures as well. Manuel usually shuts down completely when you do anything like that. 
So I can't ask that question first off the bat. That has to be something disguised somewhere in the middle, coming off the back of something he's said. So it sounds like a conversation. And that's probably the key thing that I would always say. Most interviews don't ever go the way that you're expecting them to go. And it's really important that even if you have a list of pre-prepared questions, that you're also prepared to scrap half of them and react off what your interviewee has said because most of the time it, it's about them it's not about you it's about what they have to say and you might pick up a gem of something that you had absolutely no idea and you've ignored what they've said because you're intent on getting to number seven of your questions to get them out and I think that's what a lot of um, young journalists make the mistake Did doing you feel that when you first started out as well yeah probably because you don't listen you're so intent on making sure a it's recording <laughs> Um, Which you check several times. Oh, while you're thousands, doing <laughs> thousands of times. Um, and you know, when you go into television, then there's other things that you're that you're keeping an eye on. So you're making sure that they're talking to you and not talking down the lens. So you're keeping an eye on that. You're, you've also got a press officer timing you. So you know that there are certain things you have to get away for producers who've maybe asked you for specific things. So your brain is in already in loads of different places. That's fine for me now with almost 20 years experience. That's fine because I know, you know, when to come around. But you do catch yourself sometimes where you've not listened to an answer because you've been, someone's tapped you on the shoulder. Especially if they've just finished a sentence yeah. and they've just finished up and you've completely missed the last bit of what they've there's, said. There's a trick to that. Use whatever it was the last word that they said because then it sounds like you listened. Or you could say, could you elaborate on that? But really, you should be, you should be listening. Um, but I think that's probably what I didn't do. I was more concerned about what my next question was and reading that off my crib sheet than I was listening to what they were saying and reacting off, off the back of it. Whereas nowadays, I see it more as a conversation. But obviously, you know, that's another thing that would be good for younger journalists to learn. In a conversation, you naturally interrupt people and, and go, yeah, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean you're not the interest and by you talking over what your interview's saying yeah I remember that game then someone can't use that audio or they can't clip it up as like a thing you know because what you've also got to remember depending on who you're working for is that this interview is going to be cut up into a million and million and one different pieces and used for a million and one different purposes all around the world so it's not just if I was sitting down interviewing you for example and you've got a single purpose I've got a single purpose of what I want to use our interview for I've got a load of different outlets to please and a load of different things to think great that's a great soundbite for social or that's that's brilliant leading into the Manchester um, City game or oh god he's excellent about Declan Rice there and I'm, I've speak, spoken to Declan Rice for example Declan Rice had said Manuel Pellegrini is massively and, and his coaching staff have massively helped my game you know I've got so much to thank them for for, for the work that they've done with me so I put that to, to Manuel because then he's automatically in the frame of mind. Declan has praised us, so I'm going to praise Declan. But he, again, he's quite a tough character. He was like, yeah, well, Declan had a lot of work to do um, mentally and looked at things differently. And you just get a little bit more out of him than asking a bog standard. Um, so Manchester City opening game of the season. How are you feeling? Great. Can't wait for the season to get started. End. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But equally, I remember being taught never to ask closed questions. But actually, sometimes you need to ask closed questions, particularly nowadays, that 
players in particular, you know, and I'm talking mainly football, but, you know, it does relate everywhere else. They've been media trained to within an inch of their lives. And so they know how to give you a straight bat, I'm not actually telling you anything, answer. Well, you can't do that if you ask someone a direct question. They have to answer it. And then you find that actually they feel like they need to then justify what their answer is. So then they put the meat on the bones for you. So yeah, you'll get your occasional, uh, my favorite one was, um, I interviewed Mick McCarthy after they heard Ipswich had lost. It can be a challenging person, I would guess. That's one word for it, <laughs> yeah. He's not my favorite person to interview. He's very difficult. Um, or depend, you know, it depends on, on his mood, but they'd just lost, I think it was 5-1 against Fulham. And they'd had a player sent off earlier on. And, I mean, in fairness, you probably could look back and say it was a bit of a silly question, but I just wanted to get a little bit more from him. But it's Mick McCarthy, so probably not. And I, I can't remember the player. Uh, he was, he was, he's quite a young lad. He was only like 21. And I said, you know, you were on top of that game until, you know, but that moment obviously changed it. What, what did... X, Y, uh, say to you afterwards. And he looked at me and he went, sorry. I was, <laughs> and you know, for a moment, it was really late on a Tuesday night and uh, I was just like, okay. And I thought, I'm not going to get much more out of him at all. And he was just, I kind of gave my analysis and, and he was like, yep, you just summed it up. That rate is your worst interview. Yeah, I've probably had a few where I've thought I could have done better. And then I've had a few where I'm like, it wouldn't have mattered what I said. They were on the defensive and there was, I was in a, in a bad situation. Um, sometimes you misjudge the, the situation. I think, I think now I care less about what they think of me than maybe when I was a bit younger, when I was like, well, I don't want don't to appear too combative or upset them or whatever. And now I just think, no, you're getting paid a fortune and the fans want these questions asked because at the end of the day you're not there asking the questions for yourself you're asking the questions for the fans and you have to put yourself in the fans frame of mind of what would they want to know having watched that appalling match what would they want to know and then obviously what else is going on in the immediate surroundings of the of the club if there if there are issues you have to ask do you fear for your job you know you have to ask those kind of questions um you're not always going to get nice responses and they're not always going to go come into my office and have a glass of wine and a chat, shall you? You're just not going to get that. Equally, you get other managers who know exactly how to play the game and they know exactly what you want and they know exactly what your job is and they will answer you in the best way they possibly can without stitching themselves up. Do you think you take your approach to if something hasn't gone so well? Do you think that's changed? Do you kind of go and hide under a cover somewhere and go, oh my God, that was a nightmare? I used to, definitely. Or do you go away from it going... I need to remember not to do that again yeah. or I'll, I'll do this differently. Yeah, I learn from it 100%. And, and you know, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to be a perfect interviewer because every circumstance is different. Um, I'll give you another, another example. Um, in France, after that third place game uh, between England and Sweden and leading up to it, everything that Phil Neville had said, you know, was this is failure if we don't win this. The team that wins this match is the most mentally strong. He had literally written every headline and every question. I, I always try and ask questions based on what the person I'm interviewing has said in the past. On reflection, would you now say da-da-da? Because you're, you're qu direct quoting them. 
Have you got quite a good memory then? Yeah, but I also write a lot of notes. So I'll listen back to stuff. And yeah, I mean, day to day, leaving stuff lying places, my memory is appalling. Random things that people have said, it's brilliant. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what that means. But that interview was very difficult because he'd, and to put it into context, I then knew what the context was afterwards, but I didn't know before. He had just come off the back of doing the... Uh, flash it's uh, described as a super flash interview which is the first one off the pitch with the BBC and he had said to Joe Curry oh it was a bit of a nonsense game anyway which was completely contradicting everything that he'd said leading up to it and how important it was to have a bronze medal so Twitter had gone into meltdown he'd been criticized in other quarters for you know the players who won bronze in 2015 who are now under your stewardship perhaps don't think that and he came to me straight after that, but that was done outside on the pitch. So I had absolutely no idea that that's what had been said. And then he came to me and he was quite clearly agitated. And I started off by saying, commiserations, Phil, I'm so sorry it's not ended the way everybody wanted it to. You said after the USA game that the better team won. Do you think that's the case today? Expecting him to say, yes, Sweden had more than us. I talked about, you know, mental spirit beforehand, da-da-da. No, he went, no, they weren't the better team. I'm thinking, you were watching a different game to everybody else. And then that's really difficult because no matter what you say to somebody, they have decided what they're going to say. And he was on the defensive the whole way through that. So what's running through your mind at that time? Getting back on side, but continue pushing him. My biggest fear when I went out to France was for the women's game to be taken seriously... Tony Duggan said, in Spain, for example, we get as much criticism when we fail as the men's team would do for Barcelona. That's what I want for women's football. I want to be criticised because that means that we're seen... Traditionally, it was like, oh, well, they played really well. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they're, they're professional athletes. They don't want to be modicoddled. However, probably women emotionally are slightly different to men anyway so you have to it is a slightly different thing but it's still sport so they have to be seen as as equal so I was always really keen on not making it oh I'm so sorry but you played so well I was always really wary of that because you do it subconsciously sometimes and I wanted to push Phil Neville all the players exactly how I would push Gareth Southgate or another and so I thought well I have to do this because otherwise I will be accused of being sexist and he's been saying the entire tournament that he wants to to be pushed and change things but then when you when you pushed him he didn't really like it and again it's hard because he's just come off the pitch his emotions are high he's obviously bitterly disappointed having put his heart and soul into it so you have to treat the human as well he he made a couple of comments towards me that I, at the time, was a little bit insulted by. He, j- he said twice, if you know football. I was thinking, are you suggesting I don't know football? It was just a really odd turn of phrase, and he said it twice. And I thought, okay, I can really go hard at him if I want to, and say, well, you said that anything other than winning was failure, and you've come fourth. You know, I could really stick the stick the knife in if I want to but I don't want to do that I don't want to 
you're almost thinking longer game as well. Talk sport, want to do more women's football. I'm out there representing talk sport. I want to be respectful to the England women's manager, but I need to push him. Um, so I won him back round by saying something positive that had happened in the match. But then I moved on and I said, you know, the players looked really tired out there. Is, is there an argument that you could have brought Karen Carney on earlier? And again, he saw that as a direct criticism and, you know, gave me a, a, a quite short answer. Is that kind of inexperienced his side as well? Because I would he's say not so. been in that situation before. I would say so. I think, you know, I, I really like Phil. And I think that he will look back at some of those the things that he said he almost talks a bit too much sometimes again in, in men's football it could have been really bad for him because his opening press conference he said if we don't come back with the gold medal we come back with egg on our face I mean you've written the headlines for people already just don't do it to yourself must I, run in the family that one well yeah I just I just think he perhaps could have handled things a bit better he is quite an emotional person but because he's desperate to win I admire that I admire that passion but I think sometimes you have to realize that he had a press pack totally on his side throughout that whole tournament so you just don't turn on them it's just not you know you have to admit your failings you have to admit that you know perhaps you didn't get the players up uh, for the for the bronze medal and there's no you can't question that they didn't put in 100% effort because they absolutely did but something wasn't quite right otherwise they'd have beaten Sweden and they just weren't in the game in the first half they were they were all over the place well where's that come from you have to analyze it and unfortunately I don't feel like he stood up to that enough you have confidence now that you know sometimes if you're in that situation and someone's quite abrasive back then you, you can either be confident and go back at them mm. or kind of fight your corner or you back away completely and kind of like, we'll just want to go and hide somewhere, which I I've definitely felt at times. Yeah, well, I've definitely felt that. Um, and 100% a few years ago, that is probably how I'd have felt or I'd have stumbled over my words. But then immediately, immediately you lose any respect because they know they've got to you. And I think sometimes people want to be challenged because in that environment, it's really difficult to... And, and Phil actually said it in his, in his interview. You don't always come out with an, an articulate analysis of what's just happened because your emotions have taken over. And you're talking 10 to 15... Well, in some, in some cases, in the Premier League, five minutes after the final whistle. You know, that's not a lot of time to process what's just happened in your head and give the correct response to the media, especially in, an, in a day and age where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. What, whatever you say, it's going to be twisted around for whoever's purpose it suits. And I think that's why they get frustrated and that's why you end up getting these vanilla interviews because no one wants, you know, if, if, if you say, well, you know, the players didn't put enough effort in, all of a sudden you've got back page headlines going, my players don't work hard enough. And, and then that translates to the training pitch and the players are like, Gaffer, you said we don't train hard enough. I've just done however many hours. It's self-perpetuating. So um, I can totally understand. I wouldn't want to do it. Uh, you know, I, I still, I mean, I'm a talker. I can, I can sit and have a good old chat and chew the fat for, for ages. But whether or not I could give you a sharp, insightful, short analysis of something that personally hurt me straight off a big defeat that's maybe got us relegated or knocked out of a tournament I don't know whether I would be able to do it so I have huge admiration for them fronting up and doing that in the first place
On to the final bit, which is kind of the best interview, which is probably kind of, there's probably different best ones for different <laughs> reasons. Which one's your favourite, looking back? I always really used to like sitting down with Slavin Bilic. I'm really, I'm really pleased he's back in English football at West Brom because I, th- I used to thoroughly enjoy chatting to him. He, was, he would always throw in something funny. He was really interesting. He'd always give you more time than you actually were supposed to have. And I always felt like I could just go for a beer with him afterwards and like properly, you know, you were kind of like, I was reading between the lines with that, da, 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 and like off camera, he'd tell you maybe. Um, so I, I, I used to really enjoy speaking to Slaven. I also, and I've not actually ever interviewed him one-on-one, but I have had one-on-one chats with him, is Mauricio Pochettino, who's just a fascinating individual, the way he works, the way he operates, the, everything about him, I just, I find impressive and I would love to do a proper sit-down interview with him that was not necessarily a Premier League one because for the Premier League obviously there's certain things that we can't delve into and go into you start your own podcast is what you need to do yes (laughs) I have thought about that before I have thought about it interviewing like friends of mine who go and do it and yeah and getting those things but yeah it's um because I work I've got a hat for so many different companies that I work for so obviously with the Premier League we can't really talk about anything particularly controversial and you know we don't tend to go into money and 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 things like that so um you know because it's you you protect the brand effectively but you're you're always quite conscious of that it's a question that you'd love to ask why why you're talking to them but you know you can't i found it really difficult for quite a while actually um i'll get i'll give you a good example when jose Mourinho was sacked the second time do you remember there were all the photographs of him with his jacket over his head coming out in the Range Rover. Well, it turned out that actually wasn't him. And I was at the training ground the next day working for the Premier League and I was the only journalist allowed on site. And I think I was, I think I was interviewing Ruben Loftus-Cheek before he went to Crystal Palace, I think it was. And so I'd gone in and I always go and I say hello to the lady at reception and use the loo because the press room loos are disgusting. <laughs> use the reception loo and I walked in and I walked straight into Jose Mourinho who was coming out to another Range Rover. And he'd been sacked the day before and everybody had thought he'd left. And then as I then went in, out comes Roman Abramovich. Both politely said, good morning, good morning. I've got all of my mates camped outside who I've worked with for years at Sky Sports News, wherever, and I can't tell them. I can't tell them. Jose's about to come out. I can't do that because I'm the only journalist there and they will know exactly where that's come from and I work effectively when I'm working for Premier League Productions. I work for the club. So I had to sit on what was a brilliant... When did you tell the others that you knew this? About six months later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when it didn't matter anymore. You just can't jeopardise... Jeopardise that, unfortunately, but that went against every journalistic bone in my body. <laughs> <laughs> I always listen to my interviews back because I'm a bit sad. But Some also, people are very different and will never listen to themselves again. I think you have to. How are you going to learn if you don't listen back? How are you going to, you know, I'm always self critical about what I've done. And it does take a while to get used to listening to your own voice. Yeah, so just, loads of people have said that to me over the years. I think maybe just because I've just always... When you, when you were talking to me at the beginning about when I knew I wanted to do this, I used to have a little radio station at home that, on my ghetto blaster with a little plug-in microphone. And my dad, and sometimes my mum, used to play characters for me. So I'd interview them. So my dad had been to Australia 
I think, with work. And so he came back with his um, cork hat. And so he pretended to be this Australian guy who I'd got on for this music show. And then I'd, like, introduce the music and... Uh, but interview people so it was like a music slash talk show I don't know what I was trying to, to, to gain from it at all but, but, I, but I just loved it I absolutely loved it and I think it's just a, it was a role play it was a game wasn't yeah, it yeah absolutely absolutely just in, just in my bedroom got my own little you know studio going on I'd, I'd have loved to have been a kid in this era I could have had I, I would have made my own podcasts I went to um, Lincoln University we did a, a Sky Sports run every year or two years um, a women in sport event aimed at kind of 14 15 year old girls who perhaps are interested in sport and don't really know how to get into it and we were talking about what I was going to do because a few years ago when we did it in Brighton I did radio not that it's a dying medium because I don't think it is but children are consuming media in a very different way and they don't listen to radio really unless they're in the car but they will listen to a radio show on on their phones um, but when you say radio to most of them, they don't really know who, who they like or it, it's very, very different. So I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that. Then I thought about doing commentary. And I thought, well, you're talking about 14, 15 year old girls who maybe aren't going to have enough confidence to, to do that. But I tell you what I could do. I could do podcasts because that's something that they could sit at home and record on their phones. Everybody's got, you know, the kids nowadays, they've all got smartphones just open up the voice memos and away you go. And so to describe to them that they could just sit in their room and do that, they were like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, so what are you passionate about? What do you like? You know, four of the girls were there for a bunk off. So they were like, we like shopping. I was like, right, you two, you four stay together and talk about shopping in that case. All the other girls there liked sport. So I put the Liverpool fans together, the Manchester United fans together, a couple of girls who liked judo and, and a couple of more obscure um, throwing events and things I put them together and got them to come up with something that they were passionate about that they could talk about like um, just any kind of topic any question think of a question that you want answering you've only got like two or three minutes per podcast but you know you, you can see how you could do it at home and they loved it because they hadn't thought about that before and they can listen but every single girl went oh I don't like the sound of my own voice when we when you know everybody was listening and it's like but nobody does but what you hear in your head is completely different to what somebody else yeah. hears. After kind of 100 or so episodes, you kind of get used to it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have to edit it yourself. That's yeah. the crucial one, because you have to listen to yourself. Yeah, same with me with voiceovers. Like, I know... Oh God, this is going to sound so technically boring. I know when I've not had enough water in the day, because I have to edit out so many more mouth clicks. You hear it all the time, and it's something that... Any kind of audio is quite intimate. Somebody in your ears talking to you. Yeah, oh, I can't bear it. I can't bear it. It's awful. It's like hearing... I'll tell you what my pet hate used to be. Do you remember there used to be like eating challenges on the radio years ago that used to be, let's do an eating challenge. I don't want to hear someone like chewing their food in my ear. I just don't want to. I hear that you like quizzes. I love quizzes. So I might have done a little quiz. Oh, wow. This is exciting. On, an, on one of your favourite topics. Okay. <laughs> which is Luton Town. Oh, man. Oh. So you, know, just... you know, I was talking about my memory earlier <laughs> on. So I've got five questions. Okay. So we'll try and rattle through them. Okay, first one was what was the score when Luton beat Arsenal in the 88 Football League Cup final? 3-2. Yes. Second question, who scored the winning goal with the last kick of the match? Oh, God, don't ask me that. Brian Steen. Yes. Which comedian became a director of the club in the 1980s? Eric Morecambe. 
Number four is, how many years has it been since Luton Town were last in the championship? I think it was 12. I think we got relegated 06, 07. Yes. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Back in it. Are you hopeful this year? Uh, I'm excited. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit concerned. I've not met Graham Jones yet. I'm going to reserve my judgment till I've met him. Final question. Club release a song with the Bedfordshire-based musical comedy group The Baron Nights in 1974, which was covered again for charity by UK Decay in 2014. What was it called? Oh, God. Do you know what's awful about that? I actually think my friend Jane Ledson sings on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what it's called. We've got some really weird link with Shawaddy Waddy as well, but I can't remember what that is. I don't know. The really original title is Hatters Hatters. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that would, that would have been You'll have pretty to. It's easy. on YouTube. You'll I wouldn't, have to go back I wouldn't be able to, to sing it. I'm going to have to look that up now. <laughs> it's not bad. Four out of five. Oh, that's not bad. I'll take that. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Could have carried on for ages yet. Thanks to Faye for her time. And thank you to Kairos Media for allowing us to take over one of their meeting rooms for an hour. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and what you took from it. Get in touch on Twitter, at Daniel McLaren, and Instagram, at Daniel J. McLaren, or at Tables Turn Podcast. Or head to our anchor page and leave a voice message on there. Thanks for getting through to the end. Remember to subscribe, or follow us so you don't miss any of the exciting ones we've got coming up. And check the other podcasts in this series out as well, if you haven't already, including ones with David Garrido, Alexandra Legui, and the Creative Rebels. Thank you for listening. Please take care of yourself. Now see you again next week. <laughs>